for the last three weeks a king of Judah by the name of Hezekiah. And um, as I mentioned that first week, there is no book of Hezekiah, but Hezekiah's uh, story actually appears in three different books, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and in Isaiah, where there's actually, in the, in the middle of Isaiah's prophecies, uh, it kind of takes a break, and there is a historical section of Isaiah, too, which talks about what happened at this time. And it's actually, in many ways, the, the climax of the whole book of Isaiah, because it's, it's definitely a climactic event in the history of God's people, um, the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, last week, uh, we saw how when, when Hezekiah became king at the age of 25 years old, uh, his nation was facing an, really an existential threat. It was, it was a good question as to whether Judah would even be around very long because there were military crises, invasions happening from about three different angles. Um, the, the nation was very much under assault. And, and the first thing that Hezekiah turned his attention to when he became king was, maybe surprisingly for some people, the temple and the worship life of his people because he wisely understood that Judah's relationship with God, just like our relationship with God, was going to have to take priority over all other interests in life if there was going to be deliverance, if there was going to be healing for the nation of Judah, just like in our lives. We also mentioned how in, in 701 B.C., we were headed for a climax, that Hezekiah and Judah in 701 B.C., we kind of looked ahead to how they were going to face the ultimate test. The ultimate test was going to come that year when the Assyrian army, the most powerful army from the most powerful empire on the face of the earth at that time, they were going to be at the gates of Jerusalem, and they were going to be giving the people of Judah two choices. Either turn your back on Hezekiah and turn your back on the Lord and surrender, or die. That was the choice. And I, I want to note something for you right now because you're probably going to notice it, and that is that in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles and uh, here in Isaiah, every time the story is told of Hezekiah's reign, the events are actually related not in chronological order. They're a little bit shifted around, and there's actually a good reason for that, which we're, we're going to see in a couple of weeks, but Isaiah 38 and 39 actually take place before Isaiah 36 and 37. So I mention this in case you happen to notice it and get confused. I don't mention it so that you will spend the next 10 minutes exploring this and checking everything out and doing the research on your own, although that would be my temptation if I were listening to my own sermon, and that's why I share that with you. But, but I just, I just hang with me. We are going to go in chronological order instead of the order that the Bible does it in. When we pick up the story in Isaiah chapter 38, it's about 712 B.C., so Hezekiah is 28 or 29 years old. Um, there's about 11 years to go before the Assyrians show up at the gates. And Hezekiah has started the process now of preparing the nation's military and preparing Jerusalem's infrastructure in order to defend the city against this inevitable Assyrian invasion. So he's a very busy man. But Hezekiah is about to be confronted by the first of two really huge tests of his faith that he is going to encounter even before the Assyrians arrive. The other one we'll look at in a couple of weeks. Did you ever have a moment in your life when, when you were perhaps very busy, you had a lot to do, you had a very full calendar, you had a lot of plans and dreams, you were just kind of running on all cylinders from here to there, and life was going on, and, and life was going full bore, 
But then something happened in your life that immediately changed everything, such that you had to reshuffle all of your priorities, and the things that seemed important were not important, and the things that didn't seem so important suddenly were, and, and in a moment everything changed. Has that ever happened to you? I thought about this a little bit. Um, Tuesday night, this past Tuesday night, um, some of you had some pretty severe weather, right? I mean, it was, it was really bad, the wind and the rain, especially up in the north part of the county. And I heard from people about a number of trees going down that evening in some pretty dangerous situations. Um, but I thought about this, and this did not happen. This is just a hypothetical situation. But if I had returned from our elders meeting that night at about 9.30 p.m. back to our house, um, what if I had found that a tree had fallen down through our roof? I thought, well, what, what, would, have, what would have changed in my life at that moment? A lot of things would have changed instantaneously, right? I mean, my first thought would have been, is Dawn okay? And then once I knew that she was, my next thought would have been, there's so many things to sort out. Can we spend the night here? Who do we call first? Um, you know, I guess resurfacing the deck just fell down the priority list a few rungs, right? Elders meeting, what, happened? El what elders meeting? I don't remember the elders meeting. Why? Because the things that had been on my mind suddenly have just drifted away because there are other things that they have to take a back seat to because of this sudden crisis. You know, you may have, go on a vacation one day dream vacation to another country, and you've got everything planned out by the day and by the hour, and you know exactly what you're going to be doing at this time and this time and this time, but you know what? If your passport and your wallet and your cell phone suddenly get stolen, everything changes, right? Your priorities change. Your life changes. But sometimes it's a lot more painful than having just your plans or your finances upended. One day you might get a call as I once did, about the sudden and unexpected loss of a loved one. Very often, these kinds of, of life-altering crises come up after a trip to the doctor, possibly from some diagnosis of, of, a, of a serious or even life-threatening condition for someone, and suddenly everything is different. Everything changes. The crisis takes center stage. And for a while, nothing else really matters all that deeply in your heart in your mind because this thing has rocked your world. We're going to see this happen to Hezekiah today. And as we do, I want you to keep two questions in mind, and we'll look at both of them, and they'll kind of blend together a little bit. But the first one is this. When we face these world-rocking moments of crisis, what is the proper response? What is God looking for us, looking for from us at a time like that? One way to ask the question is, what does faith look like during a crisis? What does faith look like during a crisis? The second question is related to that, and that is, what is God's posture toward us at those times? What does he think? Where is he? What is he up to? What is his attitude toward us when we're in a time of crisis? So we'll see both of those things. And as we do this, just one more caveat I want to make before we start telling the story. We are going to see today a miraculous healing. Okay, so spoiler alert. Okay, we're going to see a miraculous healing. And whenever we talk about divine healing, which is still very much a reality and very much a privilege for God's people today, it is always, nevertheless, a double-edged sword. Because I realize that while a lot of you today, when, when we think about these things, you're going to praise God as you look back at how he has healed you or healed someone else, that some of you will be instead reminded of the pain of not seeing God intervene and heal, intervene and heal a loved one or even you. 
in the way that you had hoped. And I am not today going to attempt to remove all of the mystery surrounding God's healing and when and why and, and how he chooses to heal. But I do think and I pray that we will see today that this passage is going to speak to people in both of those situations. So let's start reading the passage here in Isaiah 38, and I'm just going to start in verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Okay, let's just stop right there, because that's a pretty big verse, right? Hezekiah has been doing his thing, being king, tooling along. You know, he's, he's been a very good king. He's been a, a stellar king. For the first three or four years of his reign, all this time that he's been on the throne, things have, have, he's done the right thing. His focus through all of this has been on calling his people back to the Lord, his whole nation back to the Lord, and preparing them to confront the greatest crisis they will ever face in their history as a nation up to that point, which is coming. And in the process of doing all this, Hezekiah falls ill. We don't know what the disease is. We find out later on that it involves some sort of boil or wound on his skin, so it could be like an infection that has gone septic. It could perhaps be some, some, some serious skin disease. But I'm sure that Hezekiah initially, when he gets sick, does not even imagine that it could be fatal, because how could it be? I mean, there's so much to get done. And then suddenly, as Hezekiah is still, he's sick, but he's, he, I'm sure he's thinking, okay, well, whatever, I'll get over this. Then suddenly Isaiah, probably the most trusted voice in the palace, and very likely Hezekiah's mentor, and maybe even like a father figure to him, comes into the room with this unthinkable pronouncement. You're going to die. You're not going to recover from this. Now, what do you do at this moment? What do you say? What does faith look like at a time like this? Now, depending on your tradition, faith might look a couple of different ways, take a couple of different forms. In, in one form, it might look like kind of a holy and pious resignation, or submission might be a better word. Hezekiah could take a deep breath nod his head a few times and say in a very spiritual voice, well, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Isaiah, let's go and prepare for my funeral. You know, is that what faith looks like? On the other hand, faith might look more like holy resistance, right? Isaiah, you know what I, I know, that's, that's just nonsense. God has called me to a mission and he's not going to let me die. I rebuke this illness and I am praising God. And believing him for healing, now bring me those blueprints for that new water tunnel. I don't have time for all your negative talk. Those may be caricatures, right? But not by much, right? I mean, we kind of get the idea. Maybe you think faith looks a little bit like at least one of those two responses. And Hezekiah is, the Bible says, a man of great faith. In fact, more so, it says, than any king since David. But Hezekiah is also a real person. A real human being with real pain, real doubt, real fear, and real questions. And he is not at peace with either one of these responses. And what he actually does might not look all that triumphant as an expression of faith, but it is. Let's read verses 2 and 3. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. 
and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Now, you know, looking at this prayer, one of my initial thoughts was maybe this sounds just a little bit almost self-serving, right? I mean, if Hezekiah wants to convince God to heal him, wouldn't he be on more solid ground by appealing to God's interest and to God's glory and to say, hey, um, God, wait, wait, what about the Assyrians? You know, who's going to lead your people to stand up against the Assyrian army? Oh, and, and by the way, God, I don't have a son, so there's no heir to the throne, which as far as we know at this time would have been a true statement. So Hezekiah could say, God, what are we going to do about that? I mean, you know, I, I, you have to let me stick around because I have to fix this thing. For your glory, God. That comes perilously close to saying, God, you can't end my life because you need me. And now suddenly it doesn't sound all that spiritual anymore, right? The words that Hezekiah does use are interesting. They, they sound a little bit like something I once heard um, an iPhone say. It was actually Siri said it. My, um, my brother-in-law one time was getting, trying to get his iPhone to do something, and he got mad at Siri, and he finally said, Siri, you're fired. And she said, she didn't miss a beat, she said, after all I've done for you, That's almost what Hezekiah says here, it seems like. Right? God, after all I've done for you, how can you let me die like this? As if God owes him something. But you know what? I don't think that's what's going on here. Nor is Hezekiah claiming to be totally righteous, totally morally perfect, and totally sinless. We see that later on in a different prayer that we'll see in a few minutes. But Hezekiah, honestly, he has kind of a point. He does. The Old Testament on multiple occasions in places like Deuteronomy chapter 5, Deuteronomy chapter 7, one place in Exodus, it connects obedience and faithfulness to long life and even to healing from diseases. And yes, you could probably tell me about some righteous men in the Old Testament who, who died early. You might even say before their time. You know, Jonathan, son of Saul, comes to mind as an example. But you know what? These guys are mostly the exception to the rule. And it's very valid for Hezekiah to make this part of his appeal, to say it like this, God, it isn't like you to cut the life of a righteous man short. It isn't like you, God. It isn't like your character. It, it isn't like your pattern to cut the life of a righteous man short. And that's a good prayer. It appeals to God's love. It appeals to his character. Hezekiah is not presuming upon God here and trying to manipulate him and make him do something or order him to do something, or anything like that. But at the same time, he is not giving up on God. You may have noticed that on hearing this horrible announcement, what Hezekiah does first is he turns his face to the wall. That is, does a couple of things. First of all, it's, it's a way of dismissing Isaiah, telling him he can leave the room, and basically saying, Isaiah, I, I need some time alone. But more importantly, he, he needs time alone with God. Hezekiah's got his own relationship with God. He doesn't only have to speak to him through a prophet here. And what is about to take place is between Hezekiah and his God. Hezekiah is going to tell God exactly how he feels and what's on his mind. And then he's going to make an appeal. Almost like a lawyer would, would, would take a verdict that he doesn't like and appeal it to a higher court. That's what Hezekiah is going to do. He's going to appeal directly to God, and this appeal is a very honest appeal. It's a very brutally honest appeal, and it's also a very emotional appeal. 
an honest and emotional appeal. After this whole thing is over, Hezekiah actually writes a song about it. And you can read that song in Isaiah 38, 10 to 20. Let me just read the first seven verses of this to get kind of where Hezekiah's mind is when he's praying here to God. Verse 10, he says, this is Hezekiah's words, I said, in the middle of my days I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall, not look, on, I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. Oh, Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. Oh, restore me to health and make me live. This language is brutally honest. Hezekiah's theme is that of being cut short, being cut short, and it seems so wrong to him, it doesn't make sense. His life is being cut short, his reign is being cut short, his time with God on this earth is being cut short, his time of being with other people is being cut short, and the images that he uses are just devastating. A tent being taken down in the middle of the night unexpectedly. The weaver's fabric being cut off from the loom while it's still unfinished. Two times he says to God, from day to night you bring me to an end. He's saying, it's like I'm waking up in the morning thinking everything's fine, but by nighttime my life will be over. How can anyone bear that kind of news? And he cries out to God in verses 15 and 16, what can I do? Your words are what we live by. I can't speak words of life back into my body, but God, you can. And he says, please help me. Please save me. Please restore me. Now, starting in verse 17, the rest of the song is pretty triumphant, but you need to know that it's not really part of the original prayer. It refers to the time after Hezekiah's healing, and we know this because we know from all three accounts what Hezekiah did at the end of his prayer. He fell apart emotionally. It says he wept bitterly and the word means intensely or loudly. So Hezekiah is now weeping loudly and perhaps uncontrollably. I ask you again, is this what faith looks like? The prayer of a broken man, a desperate appeal, and a raw display of emotion. Is it okay if our faith looks like that sometimes? Can you bring God your pain? Can you bring God your doubts? Can you bring God your confusion and your complaints when you don't understand what he's doing? Can you bring him all the, the shock and the disillusionment you feel when, when your world is rocked by bad news and everything has come to a standstill? Can you even plead with him to change his mind? There's a question, huh? Does that even make sense? Does that even register with the sovereign God? Are you allowed to appeal to him that he would reverse a decision. Oh, and one more thing. Are you allowed to fall apart emotionally in his presence? Or is that not having enough faith? Maybe we could say it this way. Can you fall apart as long as you fall apart in the right direction? 
Now let's see, what's ha- let's see what happens to Hezekiah here. Maybe this will answer the question. And by the way, here's where we go from talking about what our faith might look like in a crisis to how God sees it. We're going to start seeing things maybe from his point of view, what his attitude is toward us when we come to him like this. Isaiah has just left Hezekiah's presence, and Isaiah is making his way out of the palace, but he doesn't even get out of the palace. And God taps him on the shoulder, and he says, Isaiah, yes, God? You know how you just told Hezekiah he wasn't going to recover? Yeah. Well, go back and tell him he is going to recover. Okay. So Isaiah hurries back to the king and finds him probably still crying bitterly. And who knows what Hezekiah thinks when he sees Isaiah, right? You again. What are you going to tell me? What else could you tell me? Isaiah says, God says you're going to get better. He just added 15 years to your life. Now, on what basis does God heal Hezekiah? It's very interesting to read the passage and see what God says about this. Let's go to verse 4, picking it up at verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and, go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he had promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. Skip ahead to verse um, 21. Now Isaiah had said, Let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, What is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Meaning, what is the sign that I should be able to go back to the temple again? Because he couldn't go back to the temple in the state that he was in. Now, Scripture is full of miraculous healings. You know this. Especially in the New Testament, especially in the time of Jesus and the early church. And we know We know that God often uses healings and other miracles to confirm his words, right? To back up the gospel with with signs and wonders that testify to the truthfulness of the message. We see a ton of this in the Gospel of John. We see a lot of it in, in the Acts as Jesus proves to people that he is who he says he is, and as the early church uh, sends the first Christian missionaries to take the gospel out to the ends of the earth and places where Christ is not known, we see lots of healings and lots of miracles, and we know that God still heals today. And quite often he does perform miracles and healing miracles out on what I call the bleeding edge of evangelism in places where the gospel is not well known, where the word of God is not widely distributed, and where sometimes the gospel is making its first appearance. I have read dozens of testimonies in missions magazines about how people have followed the Lord out of animism, out of Hinduism, out of Islam, after they have seen a loved one healed after they've been prayed for by the Christians. And in the case of Hezekiah, it is clear here that yes, God does have a greater agenda in mind. He makes it very evident here in verse 6 when through Isaiah he tells Hezekiah, I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and I will defend this city. So yes, there's a bigger picture here. This is not just about Hezekiah. This is about saving Jerusalem and by extension saving the whole nation of Judah and Hezekiah is indeed the man that God is planning to use to accomplish this. But is that the only reason 
that God heals Hezekiah? No. What does God say first? It's so beautiful, I want you to hear it again. Verse 5. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. I've heard your prayer. What, that, you mean that prayer that Hezekiah just cried out to you in, in panic that almost seemed more concerned about himself than about the nation? That, that prayer? What tear? The bitter tears of anguish that followed the prayer? You mean those tears? Yes, those tears and that prayer. See, God, God is indeed a God of big plans. He's a God of the big picture. He is a God who heals according to his own agenda in his own time, according to his plan. But listen, He's also a God who hears the desperate, heartfelt cry of one broken individual in a time of personal crisis. He's a God of compassion. And sometimes we see in the Gospels that Jesus healed people for no other recorded reason than that he just had compassion on the person who was asking. That's it. Sometimes their prayers were awkward. Sometimes their faith didn't seem all that strong. But they came to him and they brought him their pain and their problems and their confusion and in some cases even their doubt asking him to help their unbelief. And he showed himself to be a compassionate Savior and a loving God. Brothers and sisters, you may be in a crisis right now where you need God to step in and heal. Heal you, heal someone. If not, there's a good chance you'll be facing it in the near future. We all come to this point sooner or later where we need to know what Hezekiah remembered here, and that is that God is still a healing God. Jesus is still a healing Savior. He still hears our prayers, and he still sees our tears. And yes, it's great to come to him and say, God, heal for your glory. Heal in your plan. Heal for your agenda, not just mine. And we should say that, but you know what? You can also say this, Father, I'm hurting. I'm in trouble. I'm scared. I don't have all the right words to say, but I need your touch. I can't do this, but you can. Please heal me or heal the person I love. As we close today, let, let me just, as an epilogue, let me just look at, at one more piece of this story. It's at the end where Hezekiah asks for a sign to confirm God's promise to heal him. It's a little clearer in, in the Second Kings passage, but, but, but commentators seem to disagree here on whether Hezekiah's asking for a sign um, shows that his faith was, was weak or wavering here. Did he really need to ask for a miraculous sign? I mean, wasn't, wasn't God's promise to heal him enough for him? Wasn't God's word enough? Why didn't he need this thing to happen? Well, whether his faith was wavering or not, and maybe it was, you will notice that God did not rebuke him for asking. In fact, God gave him two choices. It doesn't say here in Isaiah, but God had actually told Isaiah to tell Hezekiah, look, what would you like? I've got two signs for you. You can pick one. See, in the palace, there was a staircase, and it was a staircase that Ahaz had, had likely remodeled. It was called the Stairway of Ahaz, and, and it acted like a sundial. As the afternoon sun was descending, you could tell the time of day by looking at which step the shadow was on at that particular moment. 
And on this particular afternoon, must have been afternoon because the shadow had already gone down 10 steps. And there must have been a lot of steps. Because we read in, in Kings that God offered to either do a fast forward or a rewind. So he said, should the, should the shadow shoot down 10 steps or should it reverse course and go back up 10 steps? And Hezekiah thinks about it for a second and he thinks, you know what? Backing it up would be a bigger miracle, I think. So he picked that one. And we don't know the details of how God accomplished this, whether he did some trick with the sunlight or whether he literally moved heaven and earth. But the shadow moved in reverse. Ten steps. What a beautiful sign. Have you thought about this? God was taking this promised calamity and he was reversing it. He was looking at all the damage that Ahaz, the builder of this staircase, had done to put Judah on the brink of destruction and he was reversing it. He was reversing time itself in order to save his people. But he was also taking the word of death that he had initially spoken through Isaiah and on Hezekiah's appeal, reversing it. Now we can get into a long theological discussion of whether God ever changes his mind, okay? Or we can put that discussion off to another day, maybe for Tom's Sunday school class. And we can just take the Apostle James at his word when he says this. And this is, this is a great Old Testament example of that great New Testament verse. The fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman is powerful and effective. Prayer changes things because God is powerful, he is compassionate, and he listens to the prayers of his people, including prayers for healing. Some of you have experienced this blessing firsthand, even in miraculous ways. And by the way, let me say this. Sometimes God uses doctors and medicine to actually do miracles. Right. I've seen this happen. Sometimes he takes a medical treatment and he makes it effective beyond all expectations. And that's actually what he did here with Hezekiah. That poultice of figs was actually a common medical treatment at that time, but nobody would have thought that it really would have saved his life. That was all God. Others have perhaps been... been experiencing something different this morning because at some point you felt that God has let you down because your prayer for healing for yourself or that loved one didn't get answered in the same way. If I did a poll, I'd probably find that most of you here have been on both sides of that particular situation. But at the end of the day, we need to remember this. Hezekiah was healed. But he was only healed for 15 years. God has worked a healing miracle that is much greater than that for each one of us who has trusted in Jesus Christ, whether or not we are healed this side of eternity. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, because his life was cut short, death itself has been reversed. The shadow has gone back. Not just 10 steps either. This shadow has been obliterated. Yes, God heals in the, heal and now, in the here and now. But the healing that we see in this life, as powerful as it is, and as much as we praise God for it, the healing in this life is really just a sample. It's a sample. It's like the little samples you get in those little tiny cups at Sam's or Costco, right? It only holds two little cookies. But it leaves you wanting to eat the whole bag, right? That's what you're supposed to do anyway. Our healing is just a foretaste of that resurrection power when God ultimately gives us the whole bag. He heals us all the way, finally and completely. How do we know that? 
How do, what sign have we been given? The sign of an empty tomb. For those of us whose faith is in Jesus Christ, He has healed all our diseases. He has forgiven all of our sins. That was certified when He rose from the dead. Death has been defeated. The curse has been reversed. And one day our healing, including our complete and total physical healing, will be all done. Let's pray.